So the issue of divorce when it comes to being a one-woman man, um, we have some disagreement even in our eldership about the issue of divorce and remarriage, and we're actually really okay with having that disagreement in the eldership. We don't feel like that's one of those dividing issues. Um, so it hasn't come up in our church yet where we've had a prospective elder who has been um, divorced and remarried. I think we would want to distinguish between whether that happened when he was a believer or when it happened when he was an unbeliever. I think that would be an important distinction for us. And maybe even something about the circumstances of that, the difference between him having a, an affair that destroyed his marriage versus perhaps his wife doing something that was apart from him and um, his wife really being the one who, who destroyed the marriage. So uh, we would want to think about it in terms of can the church still honor and respect this man? Um, and does the community still honor and respect this man? Or did he do something that would forever tarnish his reputation? So um, I, I think there can be circumstances in which a divorced, remarried man could be an elder, but I think we would have a difficult time in our church uh, probably finding too many of those circumstances. But I think it's a, a matter of a lot of dispute within the Christian world, which tells me it's not easily solved, and individual churches have to think about it and pray about it. Um, but really looking to these qualifications... Um, again, is it clear that he has, he's a man of good reputation, that he's living above reproach now and has a long track record of that? Uh, certainly, most people are far too hasty to bring men back into ministry after they've had a, a moral failure or gone through something really traumatic, even if it wasn't their moral failure. We tend to rush people right back where we should give them lots of, lots of time. In our church, we certainly practice uh, membership where men and women are equally members of the church. Um, so we do reserve the eldership and the specific functions of eldership for men, uh, but we see the congregational parts of church life uh, being equally divided between men and female, men and women or having no distinction between them. So our members' meetings, uh, husband and his wife, each have a vote and each counts equally. Women are free, invited to speak up during the meetings, to share their questions, share their wisdom. Um, we, we don't see the Bible forbidding that. We do see the Bible um, um, keeping women from some functions in the gathered worship service. And so uh, if I were to tell you about our, our worship services, you know, we would have prayer in our worship services where We'll have a pastoral prayer, which is a pastor interceding on behalf of the church. That's a distinct kind of prayer, and only an elder will lead that prayer. But there may be other forms of prayer where we just do quick prayers, like just shout out a praise to God, God I thank you for, and men and women are, are able to participate that. Or certain forms of scripture reading, before we read the scripture text that we're going to preach on, we see that as a teaching function, and a man will be reading the text in a way that teaches the congregation what the text is. He won't, he'll only be reading the text, but we see that as carrying out Paul's command to Timothy to, um, to read this, uh, publicly read the scriptures. But there may be supplemental scripture readings during the service, and, and it's fine if a woman reads those. So in our church, in our way of looking at it, that's sort of how we've divided things out. It may not be totally clear to others, but we have a clear conscience in the distinction between those things. Um, and all that is separated from members' meetings, which we don't see as gathered worship services. Rather, this is God's people coming together as a family, just as a, a husband and wife would both speak up in a family meeting. Men and women can speak up in a members' meeting. 
and have equal responsibility for the life and health of the church and the protection of the gospel. Having said all that, I do think there, I don't think it would be unbiblical or wrong within certain contexts for churches to see that otherwise. So I grew up in Dutch Reformed churches where there was a family vote. The husband would cast the vote on behalf of his family. Then later they changed it so single women could have a vote. If they weren't married, the women could vote as well in the, in the life of the church. I've been to India where the, the men worship on one side of the church and women worship on the other side of the church. You do that in Toronto, that's scandalous and I think sinful if you were to divide men from women. But in India, it, it would be a, a huge issue not to divide men from women. It would be a scandal in the community. So I think there's just certain contexts uh, where things may not may make great sense that they wouldn't in other contexts. So it's important to pray about those things and to, to really look to the scriptures for what are matters of prudence, what are matters of preference, what are matters of clear revelation. We generally give a lot of flexibility and freedom. Um, you know, with uh, with our complementarian view and um, men serving as elders, that, that says nothing about women's competencies. Um, we're simply structuring our church we, the way we believe that God structures the church as well. Um, so that has nothing to do with competencies. Um, we have uh, different women. We have what, like a women's leadership committee. And um, pretty much they do 95% of the work. And one of the things... Uh, uh, the one sister does is come, she talks to me, she comes and talks to our senior pastor, just goes through materials and talks about things. So in, in one sense, we give very little oversight to that. Um, we're, we're kept in the loop just to know what they're doing. And we give um, our recommendations, we give resources, however we can help. But we give a lot of freedom to, to the women to uh, bless the other sisters in the church. Right. Having said that, there was one year where I led the women's ministry. We just thought as a, that's when I was on staff, one of the the full-time pastors in the church, really felt that would be a sort of token of respect and love to the women if one of the elders really showed that kind of involvement. And at that time, there wasn't anyone who really wanted to lead the ministry. Uh, so I made a one-year investment. Pastor Paul made a one-year investment. We just led the ministry, taught them. And really what we were teaching was how to teach the Word. And so over two years, I think we trained and equipped um, the women to better be able to serve one another in that way. And I think it, I think it bore fruit. Um, so yeah, I think we've we've done a lot of different things over the over the years, and we've seen that ministry sometimes thrive. It's kind of been a difficult ministry in the life of our church in some ways. Just some things work well in the life of any church. Some things just seem to struggle a little bit, and that's been one that's you know sort of come and gone over the years. I think as you look, we're doing brief overviews here. As you look, I think you see there's sort of two different paths for church discipline. There's one where somebody has sinned. And there's the other where somebody's being divisive. So there's one where a man is, you know, he's, he's carrying on an affair with someone or he's stolen something. And that's, you've identified that sin in his life and you're pursuing him down, calling him to repent of that sin. Um, the other one is a person who's being divisive. He's trying to destroy the church. So he's come in, he's teaching something false. He's trying to turn people against the elders. That's a separate kind of sin. So I think they're dealt with in roughly the same way. But um, Paul says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So I think that's more for the protection of the church. The church doesn't have a lot to worry about from the person who's, you know, cursed somebody out or something. He's unlikely to destroy the church. So you can take that slow process and let it happen. 
at its own pace. But the man who's trying to destroy the church makes it sound to me like you're warning them pretty quick, and then you're saying, get out of here, no longer welcome in this church. You're warning the congregation, have nothing to do with him, because he's bringing false doctrine, false teaching into the church. I should say as well, in the in, in the life of our church, this, this discipline process happens very rarely. Most commonly it happens because people just disappeared, and we know they're not going to church. But we've never had a person still be in the church by stage four. Um, when it came time to tell them to leave, they've never come to church again. In fact, by stage two or three, they no longer came to the church. So we're actually pursuing them like we love you enough to come after you and say please turn from your sin like we know you're you're committing a sexual immorality we know you're getting deeper and deeper into that sin please turn from that sin but they've already long since left the church so it would be rare for us to to have a members meeting with a person sitting there who's being removed from membership um just we trust the process and the process is really meant to identify this person is a genuine christian and we know that because he responded to the process and repentance this person is not a genuine Christian because he responded to the process by just running away. That proves he's not a Christian. I'll add one more thing to that as well. Um, you know, especially in this season of the life of Grace Bible Fellowship, um, as you're thinking about eldership, as you're thinking about pastors, one of the things to uh, strive for and one of the things to pray for is a plurality of elders. One of the things that I love about working in a church with five different elders is that I can seek their counsel um, I, I want to have a kind of a healthy self-doubt where I'm looking at a situation one way, but like, brothers, if you see something that I'm not seeing, I want to I want to hear you as well. And when it comes to church discipline like that, we often talk about those things in our elders meetings just to see um, if there are things that we're missing or if the other elders have any other um, insight or um, counsel to that. So we try to think about it together. And I think that's a healthy place to be just being within a plurality of elders. I think when you remove someone from the membership, and that's very clear, right? You have a clear line, those who are in and those who are out. Um, I think you're already making a statement about that person and taking away uh, a lot of the influence that the person would have on the life of the church by excommunicating them. So that doesn't necessarily have to be getting them outside the church. If, as long as they're recognized and that the congregation understands that there's a clear line of those who are in the church, you're already making a statement about influence that okay, maybe you, you want to be careful of what you see in this person. You want to be careful of how you listen to them and how you're influenced by them. The dream for this room is that it would be full of the worst sinners in town, the most flagrant, flamboyant, godless sinners in town would come here and be sitting in this room. The worst case scenario that they would become members of the church, right? You have to, if you have meaningful membership, so the people who are members of the church are truly saved, you've got confidence in that, then you want the church to be full, the rest of the, the people who are coming to worship on Sunday or just coming to check it out, you want those people to be sinners. That's, that's fine. So they can be around Christians, so they can hear the gospel and be saved. Um, so if that person is removed from membership, the absolute best place he can be is right here. Now, again, if he's starting to undermine the church, if he's starting to bring false doctrine, that's a different thing. Then there may be a time where you have to ask him to step out. But if he's living, living a flagrantly sinful lifestyle during the week, but sitting in that chair on Sunday, great. That's exactly where you want him to be. I think, again, there will be lots of room. It, chances are, if he's been removed from membership, he's not a man who has a lot of credibility in the eyes of the members. So if he's going to slander, 
you know, the, the elders can take that. They, they know they, they love their people. Their people love them. It should be okay. If he's bringing false doctrine and people are starting to be, to be won over to his side, then yeah, that might be the time where you'd, you'd want to say, no, this, this man cannot be part of that. Even then, what are you really going to do about it, right? Like he's, you're meeting in a public space if he wants to come in here. Uh, it's, it's really the membership that we're talking about here, welcoming people into the membership of the church. You cast him out from that, he's still going to hang around the members. Wonderful. He'll hear the gospel. We have to be so careful we're not shunning people, right? That's never what Christians are called to do, is to shun people because of their sin. We have to draw them in. I think the fullest understanding of forgiveness in Scripture is that it's a two-way transaction, that one person extends repentance or remorse, the other person extends forgiveness. And so true forgiveness brings with it relational reconciliation. Um, so there's a sense in which if you sin against me, I can, I can live in a posture of forgiveness toward you. I'm not going to hold that sin against you. Um, even if it was a very serious sin, but that's not the same as reconciliation. So for there to be true relational reconciliation between two people, one has to express remorse, the other has to extend forgiveness, and then that is truly, that relationship is truly patched up. And I think what happens culturally is somebody does something terrible and people say, I forgive you. That person doesn't want to be forgiven. He, he committed that sin. He's happy to have committed that sin. I can't forgive him when he doesn't admit he's done anything wrong. And so I think if we live in that view, that cheapens forgiveness. To say, I'm forgiving you for something you don't want to be forgiven for. Um, that, that cheapens the whole notion of forgiveness. I can say I'm not living in bitterness toward you. I'm willing to forgive you. I'm not holding that against you. I'm not, I'm not falling into this bitter state because of it. Um, but for there to be real forgiveness, he has to request that. And then we can reconcile. Does that make sense? So at the end of Ephesians 4, Paul talks about putting away all these destructive behavior, behaviors, bitterness, slander, malice, all that stuff. And then in contrast to that, he says right at the end, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we have to allow, um, well, not really allow, but we have to we have to define forgiveness from God's point of view. And how does God forgive us. He doesn't just forgive everyone. He, he forgives those who truly repent of their sin and turn, uh, turn to Jesus Christ. So I think that ought to shape the way that we understand forgiveness as well. That being said, we want to encourage people to have a posture that is willing to forgive time. And again, willing to overlook offenses. Right. So not to, you know, Matthew 18, I think Steve said this, I want to say it again. You don't want to be a church full of henpecking, right? Where people are just constantly, you did this, you did that. You gotta give people so much grace and just overlook that offense and just let it go and, um, be the more mature Christian. We're often calling people that. Like, just be the more mature Christian in this relationship. You don't have to hunt that person down and demand that they, they express repentance. Just let it go. You know, if God really came after us for every single sin, that, that's all he would ever be doing. You know, God overlooks and he, he's punished them in Christ. And so he, mm-hmm. he, he doesn't, hunt us down over every sin. And we can live in that same way toward others. Just, I'm overlooking that. It's the glory of man to overlook an offense, right? So not to allow that sin to interfere with relationship. Yeah, that's a, a, a tricky text. Um, it's actually the, the more, I think the more accurate translation would be his children must be faithful, which actually doesn't clarify anything. Um, 
but it is, I think, a little more of a, a precise term, according to the Greek, is children must be faithful. Uh, there's different views of that. Um, if you go, there's some good articles. Justin Taylor, uh, who writes for Gospel Coalition, has written a really good article on it. Um, but as you read, you'll see people coming down in, in various positions on there. I would think, or my understanding is the big point, is that if you look at the, that, that quote I read about uh, leading the church is more like leading a family than a business, you have to see that his children are generally respectful toward dad, um, that they're not utterly rebellious. If a man raises five children and all five of them rebel against dad and rebel against the Lord, that probably shows there's something really awry in his leadership. Um, rather, his children must be um, submissive to dad. They must live under dad's authority, not rebelling. So I, I don't know why, I don't think God would hold us to the standard they must be Christians. Each of his children must profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because God is sovereign over that, not dad, right? Um, but them not being in rebellion, not being completely rebellious children who are shaking their fists at God, shaking their fists at dad, shaking their fists at um, the nation, whatever. You know, I think just children who are faithful um, to their parents and submissive to their parents. I don't know if you've got more to say. Yeah, I think it's interesting um, when Paul is writing to Titus in that one sentence he says his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And I feel like he's, he's kind of giving um, two sides to, to one coin, right? And he's showing what the contrast is. So, you know, I think that can really help um, shape our understanding of what he means uh, as believers, or what Tim said, probably better translated faithful, that they're not insubordinate, that they're not open to debauchery. Yeah. Yeah, it is a tricky one. And again, disputed. You'll find different, different views on it. There are many men in ministry whose children are completely not believers. He's got several children. None of them are following the Lord. I would take that as a pretty significant cause for concern. Um, but if a man has several children and most of them are following the Lord and, and one is not or two are not, I, I wouldn't be, I would still say he's generally showing um, that as a father he can successfully raise children, therefore successfully lead a home and so on. I think that's how most would take it. Denominational versus non-denominational churches. Uh, depends what you mean by denomination. Um, we believe a lot in the autonomy of the local church. So each local church has its own authority, and there should not be an outside body that has greater authority or more authority than the local church. Um, so we would believe more as Baptistic congregational type people we believe more in associations of church rather than denominations of churches if you will the difference being an association would be a gathering of like-minded churches perhaps so you can do mission together uh, you know you can send one missionary through six churches where each church may not be able to send its own or so you can support one another um, have a common statement of faith and uh, then easily say we could have your pastor come preach here you can have your pastor there and um, things like that. But uh, I don't think we would advocate a model where there's authority in the denomination to own the buildings or oversee the churches. Like We think that's grounded in the local church. Um, again, matters of probably somewhere between what God has revealed and prudence. I don't think there's anything sinful about denominations, uh, anything necessarily sinful. But I really would want to protect the autonomy of the local church. Call faithful elders in those churches. Um, establish healthy membership in those churches. And then you don't need the oversight of a denomination.
In our context, uh, every uh, June, so we actually have ours coming up, we have uh, our big annual business meeting, or other churches call it um, annual general meeting and stuff, where we set the budget for the new fiscal year and all that stuff. So um, in our constitution, that's a place where we have to uh, give out an advisory ballot to every single member of our church, and they get to fill in who they believe um, ought to be, or could be a good potential elder or potential deacon. Um, but that's only one factor in the, in the whole process. Uh, I think it's important, um, you know, when you see pastoral search committees, a lot of uh, churches like to establish a pastoral search committee based on the demographics of the church. So you need someone who uh, represents the children's ministry, one who represents um, the the women's ministry and the men's ministry and all that stuff. And uh, I think it... it I mean, we, we've encouraged other churches to um, have elders lead that process because they know what it takes to, to be an elder in one sense. So they're not making all the decisions, but they're giving leadership to that. And that's one way that elders could um, exercise their uh, leadership responsibilities in the life of the church. So um, we as elders initiate that process. The very first process is self-evaluation. So we'll give out our evaluation of what Tim went through to that perspective individual, tell him to go over it. He can be invited into our elders meetings, that kind of stuff. But we keep that totally private. And the reason why we want to do that is because we want to guard the man's reputation. Um, if the whole church hears that, hey, we're inviting this person to come into the eldership, we're going to evaluate him and stuff, and, but then things don't progress, then a lot of speculation can happen. So that's why we just want to guard that brother's reputation. It might just be something of his finances and everyone else is thinking, oh, he maybe he committed sexual morality or something. So we just want to steer clear of that. Um, so the first half, we have like a six-step process, self-evaluation, elder evaluation, public announcement, church evaluation, church vote, and then public installation. The first half of that is all done, uh, initiated by the elders, and just to protect the man's reputation. Yeah, I think it Elder-led congregationalism would describe what we do. It's elder-led in choosing elders, but it ultimately is a congregational selection. Um, we find those advisory ballots really helpful. Um, it's essentially just like polling the church to say, write down five names and some will bubble to the top and we'll assume that the congregation knows the people in the church well enough that they'll identify the, the most gifted people and Almost always that's the case. But sometimes people reveal they don't know people as well as they do. And then we as elders don't have to say, well, you know what? The number one nominee was this, but hey, you know what happened last year? He did this. Um, so we can keep that confidential. We can filter through those and then um, bring to the congregation, here's a man that we think we would recommend to you. Now you as a church evaluate him. We will collect your feedback. We will act on that feedback. Then we will recommend him to you for for a vote, and ultimately it's the congregation then that um, that calls him. But we want to lead in that process because, again, as as the ones who are um, best aware of, of what it is to be an elder and the ones who hopefully have the, the deepest knowledge of the eldership, we feel like we can lead that and lead toward, um, honestly, just to a better result than if we just sort of outsourced it to a collection of people, some of whom have been believers for a very short time or come out of other traditions. We think we can lead that well. Stephen, I've talked about that a little bit, anticipating the question. Um, I would think there's a couple of options. So written right into our church constitution is that there's ever a time when there is zero elders or only one elder, so no longer a plurality of elders, 
we would come under the authority or oversight of another local church. And so their elders would be elders over us until such time as there are two elders again. And we've established a plurality. It's not just a one-man show. Um, so I think one thing your church could consider is placing itself under the authority of another church and then letting those elders lead that process on your behalf. That's one option. I don't think the Bible demands it. I think it could be, it could be a biblical a wise option. Um, another way might simply be as a congregation doing an advisory kind of thing, as I understand you did with the steering committee. So have people write down names and um, then just as a congregation or as a steering committee start to evaluate those people and trust that there would be at least a couple who could be selected as elders, at which time they would be become the elders of the church and then you would have eldership and they could now uh, define a, a clearer process moving forward. I don't think anybody has the authority to tell you what to do, though. So that's going to be something the church, the congregation itself, has to decide. And, and there's a putting the cart behind uh, before the horse factor here as well. And do you have membership first or eldership first? Right. Um, I would think in your situation, you essentially already functionally have membership. So formalizing membership, I think, would make sense. And then formalizing leadership out of that membership would probably be, be wise. I don't know if you've got anything to add to that. Yeah, um, so, you know, the very first thing that Tim talked about was aspiration. Um, and I think that's going to narrow it down. Who are the, the men in the life of the church who have an aspiration um, to be an elder um, or pastor in the church? So um, one of the things that those men can do um, is take the self-evaluation process, uh, just go through the character um, qualifications. One of the things that does is actually, um, you know, we've had different guys do it in different seasons. And um, for some men, just going through that step-by-step, -step, thinking about their own life, have uh, put them in a position where they think they shouldn't be an elder. Um, so that could be a very uh, affirming process as well. Um, but Again, we don't expect perfection from these things, but we want to see growth and maturity in those levels. So that could be a very first step. And then, um, yeah, you know, if you have an established membership, uh, that evaluation type of thing could be sent out to the church to see if the church affirms that, kind of, that man's character as well. I think you have a steering committee, right? They could give some leadership to that just in terms of the process. But it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to know if there's one right way to do it. So in the last church, we, you know, they, they were in a situation where they didn't have elders. They had a leadership committee, and it was, uh, that was our council, too. You have, a, you have a few good churches around the area. Some are pretty far, but um, maybe reach out to them and see if you uh, could come under the, the leadership and the oversight of the elders there to help with the process. Another thing that comes to mind is to probably be clear on whether you're calling people to be elders or full-time employees or part-time employees of the church. I think there's going to be a lot. It'll be more difficult to call somebody to be a full-time paid employee of the church. In a sense, that's a separate step from evaluating a person's character. Um, so if you're looking internally, I think the main thing would be who has the qualifications of an elder. Let's identify those people call those people, and then maybe one of them says, you know what, I'd like to lead this church in, as a paid elder. Like I could come on and do half-time or full-time or something. I think that could, it would probably be best to make that a separate step just to relieve some of the pressure of um, sort of extending that double call. Again, not necessarily the way to do it, but it may, might make things uh, 
easier, especially because you don't right now have that elder leading to, to help you through the process. There's no one right way to do it. The Bible doesn't describe the process. It describes the, the goal. So there's going to need to be a lot of wisdom and a lot of love to get through that well, I think. There's huge opportunity for, for problems in there. Huge opportunity for hurt feelings and disagreements. I think just pray, pray, pray. And uh, believe the best, hope all things, and uh, let that process unfold. Length of service for elders. We do not have terms. Um, when you're called to be an elder, the, uh, the, the idea is you're an elder for life. Um, however, you are re-evaluated on a regular basis every three or four years. Um, you go through the evaluation process again so that um, worksheet or whatever it is sent out to the congregation, they look at your life again and reevaluate you, which may mean they would indicate this, this person not showing the character of an elder. We think you should no longer be an elder. Um, or they may give you some things you need to work on. You know, I have grown lax in that way. Um, we have had an, at least one elder resign. He just no longer felt the call to it. He's no longer aspired to it. And so we gladly accepted his resignation as an elder and uh, we're completely believe that was the right thing for him to do. Um, so it can be that you accept this lifelong call, but then um, just lose the aspiration. Having said all that, uh, some very good churches do put terms on as well of three years or four years, or some do three years on and then uh, you must take a sabbatical and you do another three years, that kind of thing. So there's lots of different models there. Well, we're a Baptist church, and so the non-negotiable for us is you must have been baptized as a believer if you want to be a member of the church. So there must have been a profession of faith, and you're confident that past that, after that profession of faith, you were baptized. Um, our our preferred mode, the mode we think is biblical and uh, best captures the biblical language and symbolism would be full immersion. Um, having said that, I don't think as Baptists we tend to get hung up on mode as much as we do meaning so or um, obedience. And so um, in our church we have had a Mennonite brother who joined and had been baptized by pouring and we were glad to welcome him into membership. So... Um, yeah, as if, if, if I were starting a, a, a new church in Mennonite country, I would insist that going forward, baptism would be by immersion. Uh, I think that would be important. That would be written into our, just the way we do church, into our constitution or into our membership covenant, whatever it is, we would immerse people. Um, but personally, and again, I'd, I'd have to pray about this and think about this and talk to people about it, but I don't think I would insist that all those who have been baptized by another mode now be re-baptized by immersion as if the full one was not was not in fact. Maybe you can tell what uh, you told me yesterday about Professor, what's his name? Oh, Dr. Stan Fowler. Yeah. Fowler. Yeah. I've, I don't remember what that was. <laughs> that was good. I don't remember either. <laughs> yeah. That happens often. Yeah, so I think it was uh, what I uh, said to Phil, too. It, it seems like the Bible uh, majors on the idea of baptism being tied to a gospel um, confession more than it is about the mode of baptism. So we want to we major on the majors and minor on the minors. Um, again, I think there are some good, strong arguments towards immersion, uh, both biblically as well as 
um, what it symbolizes, and that's what we're going to teach. But even in the way we teach that, we're going to be careful. We're not going to say that this is the way you have to do it. Period. Um, but that's how we're going to encourage our, our, our people to go because we think the Bible leans that way as opposed to some of the other modes. And that's how we're going to practice it. But, you know, what do you, what do, you do when you have someone with a disability? <laughs> and so if you, have to, you have to be open to that. Can they not become their, uh, members of the church, therefore, if they're paraplegic and they can't go underwater or something like that? Communion is, is tricky as well, and in our church, we're, we're re-evaluating the way we do communion, and the more we focus in on meaningful membership, the more we believe that uh, the Bible doesn't have a, a, this category that many churches do for non-attend, or, um, non-member attenders, so people who never really join into a church, they just attach themselves to churches and stay there, but never join into the life of the church through membership. Uh, we're more and more convinced that part of your core task, core calling as a Christian, is to join a local church, to be a member of a local church. And so we're sort of starting to change the way we we fence the table. So we used to say, if and, and sometimes still do, we're a little undecided, but uh, if you're a Christian, a baptized Christian, you may participate in communion with us. That allows a Presbyterian, someone who's baptized as a baby, you could say, I've been baptized, and who has never joined a church to join in communion with us. Because you say you're a baptized Christian. He would say, I'm a baptized Christian. Um, lately, we've been adding to it a baptized Christian who's a member of a local church. Um, because we don't want to be extending the benefits of membership to people who don't believe in membership. And we really believe that a healthy church is a church with membership. Um, Lord's Supper flows out of the membership. It's a meal primarily uh, for the people who are members of the church, others may be invited, but they're invited there only as guests. And so we're, we're more closely tying church membership with Lord's Supper and then just making it clear that uh, we believe if you're not a member of a local church by choice or by laziness, whatever it is, you're actually being disobedient to what God calls you to do because you don't have people whom you're naturally showing love to, right? You're bouncing from church to church and uh, you're not using, you're, you're not narrowing in on the people you will love with your, uh, with the ways God has gifted you and so on. I'll just add to that too. So historically you have closed communion or open communion and closed meaning only those who are within uh, your local membership, open being anyone can do it. Uh, we try to, well, so far, again, like Tim said, this is an ongoing discussion in our eldership, but w- right now we're using the language of close communion. So not closed, but close. Uh, and that basically means what, what Tim is saying. Um, you know, first of all, you are a member of this church, but if you're also a member of a gospel preaching church, then we want to invite you in. I think part of the reason we do that is uh, Paul gives a lot of instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 about how um, the church ought to be um, taking the Lord's Supper together. But right in the very beginning when he addresses the church, he says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So there is this universal aspect of the church. And um, we are, in one sense, a a greater family that goes beyond our local church. So we want to have that kind of family participation with brothers and sisters who may be coming from a, a different place, but are members of a gospel preaching church that we can affirm are real saints.